Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Onyx. The Onyx Hunt app is the premier GPS app for your phone, for your tablet, computer, anything you want you can use with the Onyx Hunt app. And one thing I want to talk about today within the app is using the hybrid layer, which combines an aerial imagery and topographical layers to be able to see differences in terrain and vegetation and this is so big for whether you're elk hunting out west or specifically you know hunting whitetails deer love edges and they love different terrain features when you can find where a difference in terrain meets a difference in vegetation that's a great spot to start your scouting and start looking. So I always pay attention to those areas and the Onyx Hunt app allows me to do that before I walk into an area. So I'm not wasting time. I can go and check some of these places out. If you want to use the Onyx Hunt app yourself, head over to onyxmaps.com and the coupon code EMW will save yourself 20% off of the app. The University of Elk Hunting, so Corey Jacobson and Elk 101 have created the most comprehensive and complete resource for increasing your elk hunting knowledge, confidence, and hopefully your success. This course has everything in it from beginning to end, from planning an elk hunt, through scouting, to learning about elk behavior, to common mistakes people made, all the way to getting your bull out of the field. And with a one-year membership to the course, you'll also have access to the UEH mobile app, which puts all the content from the online course right in the palm of your hand, anytime, anywhere, with or without cell connection. So it's really cool to be able to have all those features in there. Plus, you get some discounts from Elk 101 partners that uh, can help save you some money as well. If you head over to elk101.com and use the coupon code East Meets West, that'll save yourself 20% off of the online course. And last but not least, Tethered. So Tethered has taking the saddle hunting game and taking something that was lacking in gear and being able to come out with the lightest weight, safest, elevated hunting pl platform available in gear. And when I say the, the safest, that's, you know, a question that gets asked a lot. And I am, so my profession is, and my day job is safety and environmental. And the safety side of it, I look at things, you know, a little bit differently than most do. And, and saddle hunting is extremely safe because you're always tied off. As you're climbing up the tree, you're using the lineman's rope around the tree going up and setting the platform. And then once you're in, you're attaching you're you're attaching right to the tether. So you're taking your bridge, attaching it to the tether, and then taking off the lineman's rope. So you're hundred percent tied off at all times. It's extremely safe. And uh, for me, like I said, it's just a, a really good reassurance. So if you want to check out some of Tethered's products and learn about saddle hunting, head over to tetherednation.com. All right, so I'm going to go right into the giveaway from last week. So on the podcast with Chris Derrick, I talked about giving away the new Sika Cargo Box, which is the ultimate mobile hunting pack, as well as the new redesigned Stratus jacket. 
and had a ton of people put in for this. I gave five different ways to win through Instagram, Facebook, uh, leaving a rating review on Apple Podcasts, any order, place these meetswesthunt.com, and also signing up for the email list. So it was, um, so I, I did, so what I did was I put together a full list of all the names and, you know, from all the different platforms there because you're allowed to enter one time per platform. And so I did that and then used the random number generator on Google and ended up coming up with two winners. So the first winner of the cargo box goes to Gray Getty, which his Instagram handle is at underscore field at underscore, excuse me, at underscore field underscore two underscore fork underscore. And Gray put into every single category. He bought something online. He used Instagram to go through it. Um, Facebook, um, just email list. He did everything and it upped his chance and he ended up winning the cargo box. So congratulations, Gray. That is awesome. Please send me your name, your email, and your address to ship the cargo box to. We'll get that sent out. And then also the Sika Stratus jacket. So that goes to Stanford Fleming Jr., which his Instagram handle is at Ridge underscore runner. So Stanford, I that's awesome. You won the Stratus jacket. You entered through Instagram and you pulled out the second winning number. So congratulations and thanks again to Chris Derrick and Sika Gear for you know doing this awesome giveaway. Both of you guys, please send over your name, your address, and your email. And for you, Stanford, please get me your size for the Stratus jacket as well, and we'll get that sent out. Again, thanks everyone for the support and allowing you know companies like Sika Gear to be able to help give back to these things. Such a cool thing. Um, super pumped about that to to get you guys uh, your new gear. All right, so. The next thing I want to talk about here is I have I was was doing some summer scouting here recently, checking some trail cameras. Haven't looked at what's on the cards yet. Going to do that after I get done recording this. So I'm super pumped about it. Um, glass some logging cuts with no luck as far as finding any bucks here tonight. But um, really, really excited about that. And I uh, just got back from a trip to Colorado to visit my brother and some friends where they did some fly fishing, and which I, I've never fly fished before. So I was more of a spectator, but it was really cool to watch them, you know, do their art there and, and fly fishing. And uh, I really don't want to get into it because it's just another hobby that's going to be time consuming, expensive, and I know that I'll get completely engulfed in. So trying to stay away from that. Um, but anyways, on today's podcast, I have Dr. Carl Miller coming on. So I've recorded this podcast with Carl way back in January on a hunt with Sika Gear at Latitudes Outfitting in Ohio. Uh, we were out there doing some testing for Sika Gear, and so I got to sit down in the cabin um, with Dr. Carl Miller and talk about deer senses. So this one is awesome because so normally if you're talking about things that are like anything to do with the biology and stuff it can sometimes be dry content well carl is a complete opposite of that and he makes it 
you know, enjoyable and realistic and he's a hunter himself. So everything ties in this one has probably more knowledge and more things you can pull out than anything as far as when it comes to deer and deer hunting and understanding their behaviors. So really, I'm really pumped to release this. I held it for a while just to uh, wait and wait until it was closer to deer season, but uh, I've been really looking forward to getting this podcast out. So Hope you enjoy uh, the podcast with Dr. Carl Miller. And again, congratulations to the winners of the Sika Gear giveaway. And if you would, head over to Apple Podcasts uh, wherever or wherever you listen to the podcast and leave a rating and review that helps out so much to the podcast here. So thank you for listening. All right, we're live. Dr. Carl Miller, how hey, are Bo. you doing? Doing great, Bo. Thanks for yeah. Thanks for coming on here and, and talking with me. I'm I'm excited about it. Well, it's, it's, I think it'll be fun. Yeah. So um, we're sitting here at hunting camp in Ohio. We're uh, doing a little bit of hunting with Chris Derrick from Sick of Gear and Owen Murphy at, at Latitudes Outfitting. So uh, it's been a it's been a pretty good couple of days here. Well, it's, it hasn't been bad for January in, in Ohio. Yeah. The weather's been kind of nice. Yeah. We, we were joking a little bit about it because um, it's it's not January type weather for Ohio, but for you, uh, coming from Georgia, it Coming is. from Georgia. This is actually, this is cold coming from Georgia, but, yeah. <laughs> but being a Pennsylvania boy originally, it's a kind of a half breed here. Yeah. So. Yeah, and it's it's funny, a, a little background. Carl and I are both from the, the same area, which you had left- what forty years ago? About forty years ago, yeah. And and now you're a Georgia boy. Now, yeah, my heart still lives in the mountains of Pennsylvania, though. Yeah. <laughs> so cool, uh, Carl. I wanted to start out by, um, you know, having you give a little bit of background on yourself and you know some of the stuff you you do there. Well, I'm a professor of wildlife ecology and management, primarily working with uh, deer management, deer ecology at the University of Georgia. Uh, I run the deer lab there for about. 33 years now uh, about half a year to go before i'm done down there uh but we've done a tremendous amount of work on white-tailed deer white-tailed deer management white-tailed deer habitat but one of our focal areas has also been white-tailed deer sensory capabilities how they perceive the world through the sense of smell through the sense of sight and, and, and sound and so forth okay and that's kind of you know, you've how I've got to know you has been through through Sitka, which you've helped out with developing some of their some of their uh, gear apparel. Right, we we did a, a major project with their fanatic. A couple just just came out last year. Yeah, uh, the new fanatic, and now we're we're pursuing some other avenues as well. Yeah, and uh, it's it's great funny. group of people to work with too. By the way, yeah. I, I I think that's so cool, especially it, you know it speaks on the the gear that they're putting out by going to these type of levels to really understand it, not just you know what what a human perception is. Yeah, I have done very little work with with commercial operations in the past, you know, trying to be academic, but uh, sick sick uh, uh, they they do things right. Uh, they put the science behind this, the product they develop. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's really cool and and. Um, you know, and like I said, especially with with you coming from Pennsylvania and getting to you know understand some of that, it's uh, it's interesting. And just that, so everyone kind of knows what what we have going on here. We're sitting in the this cabin, and you know, kind of. Well, I guess we're in Pennsylvania now, 
Just, but, a, just a, we're on the border. Yeah, right? We're right, right on the border. <laughs> we're hunting Ohio though, because Ohio's hunting season still. Yeah, and uh, it's kind of like a live podcast as we have a we have a cat here that's sitting here attacking some of the the podcast bags and equipment, and I uh, don't really know what what she's doing or he. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to go to ask what it was just doing. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't either. <laughs> but yeah, so that that's interesting. So you've been doing this for. <laughs> A number of years what made you kind of you know want to get into that you know i grew up in a, in a family that deer hunting was part of well northern pennsylvania that's what people do right yeah and i just was in love with those with the animals since since day one and i went to school you know pursuing diff- different degrees until i finally had a chance to go to the university of georgia and work on my phd working with white-tailed deer with one of the world's renowned experts at the time larry marshington and he and i became quick friends and did an awful lot of work together and then once I finished my degree, they hired me on there, and I've been there, like I said, for 34 years since then. Wow, huh? That's that's interesting. So, with the how you know, I know you said that you know you got into the the deer lab and everything down there. So, what I what I kind of want to talk to you about mostly today is uh, there's there's a lot of things I'd love to talk to you about, but for the sake of the sake of the podcast, I'd love to talk about the you know the sensor uh, the sensor. Sensory perception. Sensory perception. Yes, <laughs> right. yes, yes. That's. Uh, I'll coach you along here on yeah, this thing. Yeah, I'm going to need help. You know that, Carl. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So that's. Uh, I want to. You know, get into a little bit. You know, the eyesight, the the smell, and sound. Which, um, again, these are a lot of the projects you've been working with Sika on, and it's just super interesting to me as a a hunter and everything else to kind of understand some of these things. Yeah, and you know, I think one of the the neatest ways to start off talking about this is I. I how many times I get the question by outdoor writers or even hunters is, you know, how's a deer sight compared to ours, or do deer hear better than us? Do they is their nose better than us? And well, the answer to all those is yes and no, because they're different. Mm-hmm. And the point is between deer sensory perception and our sensory perception, they're not better or worse. A deer is better at doing things that a deer does. We're better at doing things that a people does, <laughs> right? So you know, they're they're built around basically three things. And all their senses are, are revolve around those three things, the three things that are most important to, deer, to a deer. What am I going to find, or how am I going to find something to eat? How am I going to keep from being eaten? And how am I going to make another one of me? In other words, how do you communicate in a social environment? So everything that a deer does has to revolve around one of those three questions. So all the we, when we look at their sensory perception, it has to fit into one of those categories. And they're very good. Their, their, their senses are very well adapted for one of those three things. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, for what we do, our vision or our sense of hearing might be a little bit different than a deer's. It might be better for what we do. But for what a deer does, they're finely tuned to their environment. Yeah. And that's what makes it so tough of a, an animal to hunt and pursue because they're they're experts at their game and it makes it very difficult for us to actually do the research on it because we have a human bias on what we think they're seeing and but they really or, or smelling or they're doing something very different so we have to rely a lot on physiology behavioral studies you know anatomical studies uh just to try to get an idea of what we think the deer are perceiving okay and how do you how did it you know what did it take you to have that mindset you know, shift to be able to figure that out and take out the human element of it. Well, I think one of the, you know, one of the, one of the most important things you can do when you first start out is just watching deer and watching what they're doing and asking the question, why are they doing that? Instead of asking, you know, you know, how does a deer perceive something from a human perspective? How are they, what are they actually seeing? What are they actually doing there in, in those situations? Mm-hmm. 
So I guess to, to kind of get started in some of these categories here, let's start with the eyesight side of things. And, you know, what, what have you learned? I mean, and again, I know this, this podcast could turn into a book if, uh, <laughs> if you wanted to go into all of the details of it. But what are some of the, the key things that you've learned from the eyesight? You know, and the eyesight is something that we've really attacked uh, as far as research relatively recently, like the last 10 or so years, uh, we've really got into deer vision. And the more we find out the, uh, how deer perceive or how their, how their eyesight works, the more we realize that they live in a completely different world as far as a visual world than, than we do. And our eyesights are very finely adapted to or finely attuned to what we do as human beings, but a deer's eyesight works so incredibly different that it's almost like they're perceiving a different world through their sense of vision. So, you know, you hear the question is, are deer's eyes better than ours or are our eyes better than, than a deer's? Well, the answer is yes. Our eyes are better for a human perspective. Their eyes are better from a deer's perspective. Mm-hmm. And it comes, you know, their, their eyesights are adapted for. And you think about why a deer, ha- what, what's, what's a deer's eyes primarily for? And, you know, one of those three questions we get back at, is it for finding food? Probably not. Deer doesn't go through the woods looking for plants that they can identify. They do use their sense of smell probably for finding food more than their sense of vision. But probably more importantly for the deer's sense of vision is their ability to detect a, pro- a potential predator. And particularly their ability to detect movement. And that's where they're very, very finely attuned to. And we can get into a little bit more details about some of the differences between our eyes and, and a deer's eyes. And I think uh, you'll find some of it pretty fascinating. Yeah, let's, let's go into some detail on that. All right, so, well, let's just start off basically with a very, very simple stuff, looking at the anatomy of the deer's eyes. If you ever look into a deer's eyes, not into a deer mount, because <laughs> the eyes on a deer's mount oftentimes are not correct anatomically. But if, the first thing you'll notice is that their, their pupil opening, instead of being round like ours, it's more of a slit. And if you never, if you ever looked into a horse's eye, horses are very similar. They got a, a, split, a slit pupil, so it it kind of covers the whole length of the op, the eye opening, compared to being ours being round. Now, what what's the importance of that? Well, remember, deer's eyes are set on the side of their heads, so that that slit also provides them with great peripheral vision. So they're able to take in the, the entire surroundings. As a matter of fact, a deer's vision extends about about 320. 310, 320 degrees. In other words, there's only about 50 to 60 degrees behind the deer where they have a blind spot. Yeah. So even when a deer is looking away from you, they can still see you in their peripheral vision. And their peripheral vision, actually, when we'll get into that later, is much more uh, fine-tuned than our peripheral vision. They can see a lot better in their periphery. So that, that's just one aspect of it. The other part of it, the deer's pupil is that, that's important is the pupil opening, particularly in low-light condition, can open up much wider than ours can. Now, anybody that knows something about objective lenses knows that the light-gathering ability of an objective lens increases by the square of the diameter. As the diameter increases, the light-gathering ability increases. Yep. And I've never measured it, but a, the pupil opening of a deer at prob- at, you know, during glow-light conditions is probably three times the size of ours, which would mean that they would probably have about nine times the ability to see in low-light conditions as we would, just based on that larger pupil opening. Yep. Which is why a deer can run through the woods at nighttime, and you can't do that, right? <laughs> Well, that's only one. That's only half of it, though. The other half of it is that well, everybody knows that a deer's eyes shine at night, right? Yep. Well, how does that work? Well, what there is is behind. You know, as light goes through the eye, it goes across the lens and then it hits the 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 retina in the back of the deer's eye. 
in the back of a deer's eye, and in matter of fact, in the back of an eye of a lot of nocturnal animals, like an alligator, a raccoon, a whippoorwill, and so forth, they have this reflective layer called a tapetum. And that tapetum then reflects that light after it goes over the rods and cones on the back of the deer's retina. It reflects that light back over the rods and cones a second time, which is what causes the eye shine. Which means that you just took that nine times the ability to see in low light conditions and doubled it. So now we're up to 18 times the ability to see in low light conditions. So a deer at nighttime is perceiving a much brighter world than we are. Okay. So, you know, that's, that's just a very basic beginning of some of the aspects of a deer's vision. Mm-hmm. Now, um, one of the questions we often, oftentimes get is, you know, are deer colorblind? Do they see in black and white or do they see in color? Well, we kind of put that to bed a number of years ago. We found out deer do have both rods and cones. Rods are what we see in black and white, cones and, and in low light conditions. Cones are where we get our fine, uh, our, our fine visual acuity, but it's also where we see our color. But... The fact that we have cones doesn't necessarily mean that, or that a deer has cones doesn't necessarily mean that they can see color. What gives the, the, an animal the ability to see color is the photopigments that are on those cones. Now, we see in three primary colors, and that's because we have three photopigments on our cones, a red, green, and blue, right? And that's RGB cables, you know? Yep. So that's our, all our other colors are a mixture of either red, green, or blue, right? Because that's what our photoreceptors are. A number of years ago, we actually went into the deer's eyes and traced out on the cones what their, whether, how many photoreceptors they had. And it turns out deer don't have three photoreceptors. They have two. And they have one that's almost identical to our blue. Then they have one that's about halfway between our reds and our greens, kind of in the yellows. So basically, deer don't see in three colors. They see in two colors which would be very similar to a human being that had this condition called protonopia or red-green color blindness. Oh, okay. So somebody that's red-green color blindness perceives the world like a deer does. Blues are very visible to them, and they're able to tell the difference between blues and greens and blues and reds, but the difference between a red and a green is a very, little more difficult to tell. So deer, deer do have that ability to see color. We're going to carry that one step further now. That was just going based on what we could picture on the deer's photopigments. Now there's a very big difference between our ability to see those colors, not only just based on the photopigments, but also on some aspects of the deer's eye and how they're distributed. It turns out the deer have a tremendous ability, much better ability to see blues than we do. As a matter of fact, their ability to see blues is 20 times our ability to see blue. Think about that next time you wear blue jeans deer the deer skin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's very vivid to a deer. And why is that? Well, there's two reasons. One of which is, in the human being's eye, in our lens, we have a yellow filter. And what that yellow filter does is it, fo- it filters out some of the ultraviolet light coming through our eyes so we don't burn out our retina. But it also filters out some of the blue light. It's kind of like putting yellow shooting glasses on. Okay. And, you know, you put yellow shooting glasses on, it actually increases your clarity a little bit, right? Yep. But, uh, and it makes things a little bit brighter. And so, uh, but that also reduces your ability to see blues when you put yellow shooting glasses on. So in, in, in deer, the difference is they took their, your, their yellow shooting glasses off. Okay. Because they don't have that yellow filter. So that means the blues are actually getting through the lens and getting back to the photoreceptors a lot more so than they are in the human. So now it gets even more complicated than that. And this is going to get a little technical, but it's really important for people to understand this because this is kind of the key to deer vision. 
in the human being, all our cones or the, the vast, the highest density of our cones, which gives us our visual acuity, are in a very small spot right in the middle of our eye called the fovea centralis. So when a human being is looking at something, our eyes are active all the time, moving, you know, looking far, looking close. They're able to get far vision, near vision. They, that's called accommodation. But when we're reading, our eyes are moving. When we're looking at the woods, our eyes are constantly moving. If you ever look at a deer or if you want to see something very similar, look at a horse. When they're standing there, their eyes don't move. Their eyes are almost stationary. They move their heads somewhat, you know, to get different perspective. But they're not actually moving to follow movement. They keep those eyes stationary. So our visual acuity comes at a very individual spot, where, and our, our cones are, are, are focused on that individual spot. The blue and the red and the, the blue and the yellow cones in a deer's eyes are very different. The blue cones are distributed all over the retina. So what they're seeing in their peripheral vision is exactly what they're seeing when they're looking straight ahead. Okay. As far as the blue color. So yep. they, we can see blue. When we're staring at a particular object, we can identify a color at about 20 degrees angle. Yep. Deer can see that same color 300 degrees. It's pretty impressive, you know, how, that, that, particularly the blue. Yep. Okay, so that's one aspect. And before we go on to the, the, the yellow, uh, the questions a lot of people then ask is, well, why, why would they be adapted to see blues? Why is blues important for them? Mm-hmm. Well, think about what, you know, when time, what time deer are most active. Nighttime, in, in, in crepuscular light. time, yeah. morning and lo- lo- evening, when there's a lot of ambient blue light out there. You know, so they're figuring in on that stuff. During the daytime, you've got a lot of all the types of w- wavelengths out there. But as you get towards dusk and then into the nighttime, there's a lot more blues, so they're focusing in on a lot of those blues. And blues carry more energy than the longer wavelengths, uh, so uh, it's, their ability to pick up movement again is, is very good. Okay, so that's the blues. Now, if you look at the distribution of the yellow cones, they're actually at, along a band all the way across the back of the retina. So in the yellows, then, when a deer is looking at any individual spot in any direction, they're seeing the same thing. In the same clarity. Okay. Which it, it's actually their clarity at a stationary object is much less than ours. So how this all fits together now. When a deer's standing looking at a, a stationary object, their visual acuity, and we actually measured their visual acuity, is actually pretty poor. You know, say, well, I know deer have very good eyesight. No, deer do have good eyesight when something is moving. When something's moving. But a okay. stationary object, how many, t- you've walked out into the end of a field, right? Yep. And you've seen this deer out in the end of the field. You say, you look down there and say, there's a deer at the end of the field. What's the deer say? He looks at you, bobs his head, yeah. moves, trying to move side to side because a deer can't accommodate. They can't tell the d- distance and you're actually not that clear to them. And they're trying to get you in a 3D perspective. They're trying to actually pick up that movement in the, against the background to figure out what you are. They don't know because they can't see it that well until you move. Uh, so kind of like when I was in the tree stand this morning and a deer, I, well, I actually picked up on me by smell, but then he looked in my direction and when I just stayed still and didn't move, it just stood there looking for a while and couldn't figure it out. And it was walking around and doing kind of a semicircle and trying to get me to move. And I just And any froze. human being would know that's a human in a tree, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's had, every hunter's had that experience of a deer walking up to him and not seeing him. Yep. If you don't move, right? So that so deer's deer's eyes are adapted to pick up movement. Now with that vision, that band over there, anything that moves, 
So in, instead of a deer tracking movement with its eye, like we do, where we're trying to, you see a deer moving through the woods, you're trying to focus on the deer as it moves through the woods. A deer seeing a human keeps its eyes in one, in one plane. Mm-hmm. And as that object in its environment moves, the image on its retina moves. So the eye doesn't have to move, the image moves across the retina, which gives them a much better ability to pick up movement, which is why a deer can run through the woods, you know, at full speed without having to track every branch, every stick, every rock and stuff like that, like we do. They're seeing the whole panorama being played out as they're moving. Interesting. So, so again, it comes back to their idea that deer's vision at a stationary object is really poor. There are, but they get their acuity based on movement, which is pretty dang fascinating. Yeah, it is. That, that uh, yeah, I'd never heard it put that way. I guess before, and and yeah, it makes sense why. Yeah, you and I go running through the woods. We're gonna probably run into some things and watching out for branches and everything. And they move through like it's even with antlers on their head and everything else, just swiftly and incredibly. Yeah, they they, they just fluent. S- the whole thing is a three D panorama playing around them. You know, as they're yeah. Moving which is fascinating. Let me add one more thing, and this is one we, we some, uh, based on a study that we just finished up at, at, at the university. Not only is their ability to pick up movement based on the structure of their, their, their cones and their eyes enhanced, but also they can process that information much faster than we can. There's a thing called a flicker fusion rate. You've probably seen, these, and you, you've probably seen something like this where you see this flashing ball, and as that flashing ball gets that flash gets faster and faster and faster. It'll get to a point where it overwhelms your eye's ability to pick up that flash anymore. Yeah, and it's just, it's just it looks solid, almost, right? Yeah. Well, it, we did, we measured. That's called the flicker fusion rate. We looked at the deer's eyes' ability to do that, and that's a that's a measure of how fast it can process speed. You know, the, the visual pr- speed in a deer's eye, they can actually process that. That light can be flashing where a human sees it as a solid cup, color. The deer will still see it flashing up to four times faster than what a human can perceive, which means they're processing information at a rate four times faster than we do, visual images, which is another reason why they can run through the woods because that processing speed just is so quick. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. And, and yeah, as I'm, you know, sitting here kind of thinking about it in my head, you know, with us, we have peripheral vision, but it's distorted besides past that, what, 20 degrees right. you were saying. And for them, it's the same thing, almost like a panoramic photo going around, correct? Right. And try, try that sometime when you're lo- looking at a stationary object, just look at, you know, look at something straight in front of you and then see how far you can identify a blue and you can't identify a blue much more than about a 20-degree angle. Yep. And then how far you can identify movement. You can barely identify movement at, you know, 180 degrees. And, but deer are seeing what they're seeing, what they're looking straight ahead, they're seeing on their sides just as well. Okay. So, and and I guess to go back to the color um, side of things, you were talking about blues and yellows. So those are definitely colors to avoid wearing. Well, per- in particular, the blues. Okay. Because one, there there's great greatly enhanced ability to see blues, plus the idea that what, when we're out there hunting, there's just an awful lot of blue light out there that can reflect off the you know that can make make basically look blue look like it's glowing. Okay. That okay. That makes sense. You could actually do this yourself. Is you know sometime when wear a pair of kind of blue jeans that kind of faded blue jeans. Yep. Right at dusk, and look at your legs. 
and you'll see that they almost start to glow a little bit yeah. because, because there is a lot of blues out there to be reflected at that time of day. But huh. then think about an animal that has 20 times the ability of you to see that blue. Blue jeans in a, in a tree stand would look like a pair of glowing legs in a tree stand to a deer. So, okay, so now let's go to something I've always heard, and I want to hear if this is a myth or not, but what about, like, when you're using a headlamp to go into the woods, if you use a red or green light versus, you know, a regular white light? I get that question. I I wonder what – deer inherently aren't afraid of light. Okay. And I don't. I don't think it matters what color you're wearing. You know, they they, yeah. they they will see a red light. They you know not as well as they'll see a green light. Yep. Because deer don't see as far into the red part of the spectrum as we do. A dark red is, a deer doesn't see very well. But they will still see the light. Yeah. But you know, you think about it, deer aren't afraid of lightning. They're not afraid of lightning bugs. They're not afraid of cars on the side of the road. You know, I mean, all these types of things. And the number of times I used to coon hunt a lot, and I'd be out there at nighttime with a light, and a lot of times you can walk right up to a deer with that light because all they see is something glowing out. They don't know there's a hunter behind that light. Yeah. All they see is a light getting bigger. You know, that's, what is that? <laughs> yeah. And a matter of fact, there's many times that I've been out in the woods where you shine a light on a deer and they're more afraid of the shadow that they are casting on the other side of the deer than they are the light itself. And I've actually had deer move towards me because of that. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, because that, that's one thing I've always heard. And, and I've noticed, too, like just from my own just hunting a, a bunch that if I'm going into the woods, say, a half hour before it comes light, I can I spook more deer than if it was an hour before where it's darker with my headlamp on and stuff. Like I've walked right past deer with my headlamp on going to my tree stand and had zero issues when it was really dark out versus trying to sneak in, you know, just as it's, you know, about to get light without, without, without one I, on. And I, I would agree a hundred percent with you because yeah. I mean, there is no reason for a deer to in, be inherently afraid of a light. Yeah. And again, this is just, I had zero science to back this up, but when for, for myself, I I've talked to other people, friends, buddies that have said they don't use a headlamp walking into the woods. And I'm like, I use one at night. And they're like, aren't you afraid of spooking the deer? And I was like, I haven't seen a correlation to that. Now, it, you know, if you're in there early enough, yeah. a half hour, 45 minutes, if you spooked the deer, that deer would have been gone anyway. Yeah. And any deer that's coming by, you wouldn't have seen you coming in anyways. Gotcha. Okay. That 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 makes sense. That's always something I've, I've wanted to, to kind of know the answer of there. Yeah. I've, I've never really worried about that much. Interesting. And okay. So... The other thing that I would like is to talk a little bit about with vision is the importance of, so with say camouflage patterns or anything else, do you see, I mean, is that something that's important or do you think, I mean, I know you said the movement is the biggest thing, but what can, can you kind of get away with a little bit more? Yeah, I, I think, I, you know, most camouflage is sold to hunters based on human vision, not on deer vision. Mm-hmm. You know, that somebody says, well, that looks like uh, it's got oak leaves and stuff like that in there, so it must look like the woods. Well, you know, I don't think that's as important to deer because, they, again, they're not that, their visual acuity of looking at a stationary object is not that important. We've all had occasions where deer walked right up to us wearing something besides camouflage, right? Yep. So they're, they're not inherently, uh, the camouflage that's built towards the human eye doesn't necessarily mean it's built towards the deer's eye. I think the two biggest important things with it when the developing of a camouflage is one is the colors and how much what wavelength that camouflage is reflecting, particularly if it's got a lot of whiteners or brighteners in that camouflage that reflects a lot of blues. 
which means any camouflage that's got a lot of white in it will reflect a lot of blues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the, the one is the other one is how how well it can break up the the, the perception of motion. And you know, so the, the different camp, the different patterns that they have within that kind of you know, this one the the the, the you know the, the the pattern, the basic pattern that Sika has is very good at doing that, is breaking up that that movement. And I think there's some still some work to be done that can actually improve that ability to kind of mask movement. But that's going to be a, a tough nut to crack into the future. But, yeah. You know, I think you know if you can come up with that as a camel, that's going to be very very effective. But again, you know, coming back to it, it's 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 masking movement and masking and and, and kind of matching colors to the environment. Not necessarily matching the pattern, but matching the color reflection. And and back to what you said, to a deer's vision, not a human perception. Right. Yeah. Right. So in other words, anything that's reflecting a lot of blues is probably not good. Particularly in a situation where you, it gets a little trickier than that. If you're in a situation where you've got a canopy or something where there's, underneath a the canopy, there's not a lot of blues because a lot of the blues are getting absorbed by the leaves. So if you've got something that's in the blues under the canopy, that's going to reflect a lot. But if you're like the gray sky that we have out there in Pennsylvania right now, or most of the winter time, yeah. <laughs> you know, where you got a gray sky, a camel pattern that kind of matches that to matches the blues up there would be important. So you've got to match again, match the background and match the hues in the background uh, um, to, as it relates to the deer's ability in their two photopigments on their their cones versus the the photopigments that humans have. Okay. All right, that makes sense. I, I know that's um, that's a, a a tough question to to be able to ask, but I always I always wondered. You know, there's people that say, "Oh, you don't need camouflage," or I, you know, the the mimicry patterns, or versus something like a you know an optifade um, pattern there. So, you know, there's one other aspect I, <laughs> I think, and I, I, this one, it, and I don't have any science to go with this, just hunting observations. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of people wear camouflage, but they will leave their hands and face exposed. And the hands and face, particularly the face, you know, if you ever watch a deer look at you, what they're cueing in on is your eyes. And same thing that we do when we're looking at deer. We look at their eyes, right? And most animals are looking for that. And I I think camouflaging your face can be just as, you know, or more important than camouflaging some other parts of your body. Yeah. And, yeah, we were just talking about that before we recorded the podcast there as I was – again saying that a deer was looking i mean felt like he was looking right through my soul (laughs) staring up at me because i didn't wear a face mask or didn't paint you know my face or break that up in any you know sort of ways (laughs) how many times you've been out in the woods hunting and where you where you saw a a a deer uh, off to the side or something like that and you look around and and then until you make that deer doesn't move until you make eye contact with it yeah and as soon as you make eye contact they know that yep yeah, I, yeah, and they they can feel you looking at them, or well, they're doing it, you know, through their their visual. But right. <laughs> it's almost like they sense it, you know. Yeah, that's what that's yeah, that's kind of the way I've always thought of it. All right, well, that's interesting. Um, is there anything else on the vision standpoint you think you'd uh, you want to note? Um, you know, I think we can go into some other details and such, but I. I Given, given time, we got a couple other senses to deal with yeah. here, uh, and uh, some of which we've done a, uh, an extensive amount of work with is both the the sense of smell and the sense of hearing. Okay. And let's start with the sense of hearing first, because that's a relatively simple one to deal with. Are deer's ears better than ours, or are our ears better than a deer? Yeah. Let me ask you that question. What do you think? 
in my, in my own mind, I think the deer has better hearing than us. Everybody would say that. We tested the deer's hearing, and there's another group of uh, uh, researchers in Ohio that tested the deer's hearing, and it turns out their hearing is really not that much better than ours. It's actually not that much different than ours. And you say, oh, bull, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> what I feel like, yeah. Say, but think about this. You know, you're sitting on a stand, and uh, you're looking at a deer out in front of you, and that, and you hear a squirrel hunt running behind you or something like that. You say, you turn around to see what that was. The deer never lifts his head, right? Yeah. Okay, but the deer, all of a sudden you're watching that deer, and all of a sudden the deer hears something, lifts its head, and there's another deer coming. They knew the difference between a squirrel and a deer. The point being is a deer knows what it's supposed to hear and knows what it's not supposed to hear. They live in the woods 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and we don't. Yep. If we dropped a nickel on a linoleum floor in your kitchen, you'd probably be able to identify that yeah. as a nickel, right? Or if you hear something going different in your truck, some, some noise in your truck. It's not right. You can identify, well, my wife can't do that, but, <laughs> but, but you know, you, you, you hear what, what, you're, what you know what's right and you know what's not right. And the same thing with a deer. They know what they're supposed to hear and they yeah. know what they're not supposed to hear. And the cadence of a human being walking through the woods is different than anything else in the, you know, in the woods. And, it, you know, unless you can mimic the sound of some other animal, the deer will pick up that in a heartbeat, that cadence. Yeah. So, you know, their, their ability to hear is really, like I said, it's not that much better. It's just that they know what they're supposed to hear. Now, that said, there's, a, there's some slight differences associated with that. Deer actually hear a little bit better into the higher frequencies than we do. We hear somewhere around the 2 to 4 megahertz. They hear about the 4 to 6, which is not a major difference. But they, they hear higher, higher frequencies that don't hear the low frequencies quite as well. But the important thing is deer also have these ex large external ears, which gives them ability. It gives them actually two abilities. One of the abilities is to focal, locate the source of a sound so that they can, they can actually identify exactly where that sound is coming from because they're able to move the ears around. Mm -hmm. But it also helps accentuate the ability or the, hear, the amount of noise that's going into the deer's ear. So when a deer has its ears cupped towards the sound, it actually accentuates the amount of, it's like you putting your, your hand to your ear. You actually increase the ability to hear, right? Mm -hmm. But what that also does is reduces your ability to hear behind you. So when deer's ears are cupped towards you, their ears are probably better than ours. When they're turned the other way, they're worse than ours. It just helps, you know, guide that sound into, into their ear canal. But even though that, that they're say they might not be able to hear as good off of wherever their ear is pointing. They still have the ability to identify certain sounds, which even though they might right. not be as that's loud why, or That's clear. why when a deer's looking around, their ears are moving in different directions, trying to identify those the sort you know that direction noise coming from that direction, but also accentuating yeah. the amount of sound that's coming into the ear from that direction. Yep. And what you're saying about like the the squirrel versus a deer, I, I noticed that especially yesterday I saw about a thousand squirrels. It seemed like and uh, the the deer they'd be running past and they never you know move nothing. Then I know when another deer was coming, not for me hearing it, but by them Watch they're the deer. they snap their head and they look you know in that direction. You see their ears kind of point in that way, and all of a sudden here'd come you know another couple deer that were coming into the field. So it was. It was uh, it was really interesting to pretty impressive see what that. what they're able to filter out. Right? Yeah, it is, right. and I guess I don't get to see as much of that 
um, where, where you grew up and where I live in Pennsylvania, because I don't see as many deer. <laughs> so, so it's tough to see how they react around others. <laughs> well, it used to be in Northern Pennsylvania when you had too many deer. That's, I grew up in the, that area when there were too many deer up there. There were plenty of deer. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why there's not so many deer up there now, right? Yep. Yeah. That's funny. Um, so I, I guess from, um, from a hunting perspective, um, and things like, you know, they, they notice, you know, your footsteps, um, notice brushing against a tree. I'd imagine do they, can they pick up on like things like that or yeah. Metal on metal, metal on metal. Yeah. yeah that's everybody knows that, right? Yeah. Bow, any bow hunters experienced that at some point. Right? Yep. Or squeaking of your boots on a stand or anything along those lines are different. It's out of their normal. Um, okay. So I, I think I'm following along with you there. <laughs> Well, yeah, there, one thing I noticed, <laughs> kind of funny, the, just the other day while, while I was sitting in a stand, I, I was talking to my wife, and I had her on speakerphone, and as I was sat, talking to her, this little button buck come by, and I was just talking to her, and this button buck looked at me, and I was still talking to her, to Renee, and looked at me, then just went on, <laughs> <laughs> like, it didn't even care, I, I don't know, well, that's a, that's a button buck for you, you know, they're, yeah. not, they're not the wisest creature that God put on the earth. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny <laughs> yeah you, you're not gonna find uh you know a three and a half year old or older yeah. deer doing anything like they that. didn't get three and a half because of that stupidity right? yep <laughs> yeah that's funny all right so let's let's go into um let's go into the last the last thing their sense of smell and you said this one it can be pretty complicated yeah and this is one of the and it's off all obviously the hardest one for us to crack because compared to a deer's sense of smell our sense of smell is pretty much non-existent mm -hmm. um, so a way to way to think about this you know how important is a deer's sense of smell what is it primarily used for we talked about those three questions a deer asks what am i going to find to eat and that's probably the most important thing because deer don't go walking through the woods with a dendrology textbook looking for different plants or identifying plants that are edible they smell them they can tell a good acorn from a bad acorn just by smelling it on the ground. They don't go looking for acorns on the ground. They use their nose. You've all, you've experienced that. Yep. You hear a deer picking up acorns. They sound like a little vacuum cleaner snuffing the ground, right? So they, most of what they're picking up is by the sense of smell, and they they can tell what's palatable, what's not, what's you know what's good to eat, and what's not by the sense of smell. It's important for predator avoidance, but it's probably not their primary mechanism of predator avoidance. You know, everybody worried about being scent free and stuff like that. But the sense of smell is great as long as the deer is downwind. Yeah. But if the if the the pre potential predator is downwind of the deer, the sense of smell is is worthless for that for predator avoidance, right? So instead of worrying about whether you're going to have all kinds of scent free clothes and stuff like that, just hunt. Make sure you're downwind of where the deer is supposed to be. Yeah. Hunt the wind, right? Yeah. Hunt smart. Uh, so, uh, and then the third aspect is how they communicate with each other, and I think that's. A, probably underestimated how, how important that is in d the deer world because the, a lot of their communication, although they do have some sounds that they make, different types of grunts and snorts and stuff like that, probably most of their communication is either through body posture or through the sense of smell. And they communicate a lot through the sense of smell. Uh, there's a lot of sources of that those, those different scents. We've been able to identify seven different glands that deer have some of which we know a lot about and some of which we don't know anything about. If you want to go into each one of those, we could do that. Yeah, I, yeah there's, um, so one that, you know, there's actually two that come to mind that, that I know of. I have probably not uh, not extensive knowledge on the other ones, but the preorbital gland 
that I've seen from my own use. I, I put preorbital gland scent on the licking branch of scrapes. And what I've found was through just my trail cameras that they seem to use that year round, even though they might not paw up the ground and use the scrape. Normally they'll, they, they, I don't know if it's, you know, some sort of form of communication, but they'll always go and rub up against that. Yeah, yeah that, that's kind of interesting you say that because we have found no indication that the preorbital gland is active as a scent gland in the whitetail. Really? Yeah, you know that we know that they work these overhanging branches year round. There's yeah. no question about that. And we've actually put up at you know slow slow motion cameras on these these lick, what we call licking sticks. Yep. And look to see if they're actually using the preorbital gland. And it doesn't look like it's more looks like they're either using saliva. Okay. Or they're using just some, or their forehead gland. There's a gland on, located right on their forehead, an area of enhanced glandular activity, I should say. Or they're using some, you know, some other source we don't know about. But it doesn't look like the preorbital itself is that is the source of that scent. Okay. Um, Interesting. Although there are, t- are, there's two times, there's two occasions where I see in deer where that preorbital gland is flared wide open, and one of which is when two bucks are about to get into and a tight encounter. Yep. You know, they're sidling up to each other. They got, they're walking stiff legged. They got their hair all erected. They look, you know, twice the size of them. Yep. That's called pilo erection. Their ears are pinned back and they're usually their preorbital glands are flared wide open. Now, whether that's a chemical signal or a visual signal, I don't know. The other time is when a doe is nursing a fawn, you, you know, the fawn's underneath the doe and the doe's around the backside of the fawn taking care of yesterday's nursing, usually that doe has her preorbital gland flared open as well. Again, that could be just a visual signal. Okay. But I'm not saying that it's not a scent gland, but we haven't been able to show any any activity that it changes over time, the activity of the gland or the, 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 the composition of that gland yeah. changes either over time or related to different sexes. We so maybe, maybe we're just not smart enough to figure it out yet, but yeah, uh, I don't think that's as important a one on the head uh, there's actually three glands on the deer's head, mm-hmm. and one, one of them being the, the preorbital gland. The other two are, one's called the forehead gland, and that's located between the ears and the eyes that in the forehead patch, which is not an actually gland itself, but it's an area where there's the skin glands have enhanced activity that are actually in response to testosterone, they increase their activity. Okay. Which, okay, that should start your wheels turning a little bit, you know, increase testosterone during the fall. Yep. What what are they producing? They're producing a scent that's act, scent is actually left when they're making a rub on a tree. These bucks are making these rubs not to strengthen their neck, not to get rid of their velvet, but they're making these rubs out there to leave a scent out there for other deer in the area. And we've been able to train dogs that they can actually identify that there's a deer scent on that thing for up to seven days after that buck makes a rub. Uh, and other deer at times will respond to those rubs as well by smelling them. And even does at times will respond to those rubs by smelling them and, and licking them. Mm-hmm. So next time you watch a buck make a rub, watch how they're doing it. Because you'll notice that a lot of times they'll rub it and they'll stop and smell it. Yep. Lick it a little bit and rub it some more. And they're not rubbing their antlers so much as the base of their antlers yeah. and their forehead patch. And that forehead patch, those are what are called apocrine glands. And they're under the influence of testosterone. So they become more active. And that's why you don't see, well, there's, I mean, when they're in velvet, obviously you're not going to rub up against tree, but you see them at a certain time of the year is when you're seeing the, the rubs coming right. up. And that, that is a form of communication. What they're communicating is they're communicating to other bucks that I'm in the area. Yep. Uh, you remember what they're doing at this time of year when they're making all these rubs is they're setting up their dominance hierarchy. 
So every time they meet a buck, they don't want to have to get into a fight. They're doing these pushing matches, all this sparring and stuff like that. But they're letting other bucks know where they are at all times. In other words, you're, you're making your scent. This is, this is my area. Okay. And if you ever watch two bucks that go into a sparring match, a lot of times after that sparring match, that the one that perceives himself as the loser, the subordinate one, will oftentimes smell or lick the forehead gland of the dominant one. Yeah. In other words, I want to figure out what this guy smells like because I know I can't whoop him, right? Yeah, I don't want to. And I want to know where again. he's at. You yeah. know? So when I smell his rubs, I know where he's at, right? So, so not only that, you know, the does respond to that as well. They're leaving their scent out there, broadcasting the does, say, hey, yeah, I'm in the area when you're ready, right? And would that, so that would be okay. Um, from some of the things I've learned from scouting and everything else, is a lot of times when you say you find a, a buck bed or anything out that would be on a point, you have some rubs that are leaving that bed and whatever their exit trails or entrance trails are, and they're kind of sounds like they're doing that to establish, hey, this is my zone. This is where I'm betting. You know, yeah, this this, this is my area. Yeah, you know? and if, okay. And if you remember me, <laughs> yeah. And, and usually when you end up having these dominant fights during the rut is at times when bucks, you know, they, they already have their established dominance hierarchy, you know, pre-rut. But during the rut, they expand their range, move, looking for does, and they encounter bucks that they aren't familiar with at that time. Yep. And at the same time, their testosterone level is higher. They think they're dominant. So that's when the fights occur. Okay. So. Yeah. Okay. And it, I th- you know, a, a lot of people don't realize how many bu- rubs that a buck can make in a year, too. And it, it can be in the, into the thousands. Yeah. For an individual, you know, a mature buck makes a lot more rubs than a smaller buck will. Uh, but it, it, they can make, you know, some of our estimates can be as much as 10 to 15 a day. Really? Yeah. So, yeah. So, if you, um, someone that's hunting a, a specific rub, that's, <laughs> yeah. your, your, your chances aren't uh, aren't that good. No, but, but <laughs> depending when you, on but you can location. start finding patterns of these rubs, yeah. you know, and you can start figuring out a deer's movement yeah. through, through time. Now, obviously, you can use that patterning to figure out how they're changing as far as f- food resources as well. You know, early in the season where they're around egg fields or something, there are going to be a lot of rubs around the egg fields. But once that crop is harvested, no sense hunting around those rubs because the buck's going to be in the acorns, right? Yeah. Until, until the, the rut. And then he could be anywhere. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, so with um, you were talking about the forehead gland and the preorbital. What's the what's the other one that's well, the, on the their third head? one's actually a gland that's located on the inside of the deer's nose called the nasal gland. Mm-hmm. And it was found. We found it at Georgia. I mean, twenty uh, some years ago, and and it, it's a type of sebaceous gland that very likely isn't even a scent producing gland. Because you think about it, having a gland inside your nose is not the best place to produce a scent, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. after you smell something for so long, you lose your ability to smell that smell. So, And it's probably these sebaceous glands produce a kind of a fatty material. And if you think about it, you know, a deer's nose, well, let me get a little more technical. Every hair on a, a deer's body has a little sebaceous gland associated with it. Just like every hair on your body has a sebaceous gland associated with it, that's what's kind of makes your skin get oily, mm-hmm. right? And it's a way of protecting the skin, protecting the hairs and so forth so it doesn't get brittle. Well, at the end of a deer's face, they got this black ball there that doesn't really have much for hairs there, so they don't have any sebaceous glands there. So there's, it's, it's kind of like our lips where it's an area that could get chaffed or chaped. Yep. You know, and you think about it, a deer's nose is going to be in the vegetation all the time. So, you know, it's, it's, it's probably something you see a deer lick its nose a lot of time. Yep. It's probably something that's using as more as an emollient 
it's, it's kind of like a natural chapstick for yeah the, you know okay you know that's my my best guess of what that's that that's would be for. helpful if we had something like that right <laughs> well, i, I mean, wouldn't have to have my stick, chapstick all the time you'd have to stick your tongue up your nose <laughs> <laughs> yeah all right good point so, that won't quite work <laughs> yeah but, that probably wouldn't uh work well in public it wouldn't yeah. look right <laughs> so when we're talking about think about this also when we're talking about the sense of smell that thing at the, the end of a deer's nose, end of the deer's face, that black thing is not the deer's nose. Mm-hmm. That's just where the, the opening to the nasal passages. The nasal passages then go all the way up, and the actual nose, where the what's called the sensory epithelium, or this part of the 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 part of the the nose that actually identifies those scents or receives those scents, is way up by the deer's eyes. So they've got all this. Oh, you've probably seen when you're, you know, a deer's nose being yep. that long. What the question is, why does a deer have a long nose? Well, there's a couple of reasons for that, but think about it. You know, here, here's a deer that spends a lot of its time feeding on vegetation or feeding on the ground. Yep. But it's still a prey animal, so it wants to separate. You know, it naturally wants to separate its eyes. If we had to do that, our face would be right in the vegetation or right square on the ground, right? Yeah. So a deer doesn't. It wants to have its eyes back away from that vegetation so it doesn't get poked in the eye or so it can still watch for predators while it's, while it's feeding. So what, it, what nature did is actually push the deer's mouth and nose further away from its – Yeah. And, and gave it that long, long space there. Huh. Now, so the deer's nose actually or where it perceives that scent – is actually, again, way at the back end of that, and there's what's called the nasal epithelium. Mm-hmm. And it's an area where basically there's a little extensions from the brain. You know, It's hard to describe exactly what, you know, in, without technical terms, but there are kind of little extensions from the brain that actually pick up these scents. And it's, it's very folded in there. There's a tremendous amount of surface area in there. And all those sensory epithelium is where, you know, each individual odor is picked up. Now, a deer has to have a receptor site for any particular odor. So there's certain odors that it probably smells very well, and so there are certain odors it might not smell quite as well. It's even conceivable that there may be odors that we could smell better than a deer could. Hmm. Okay. It's not just a quantitative that you, they got a better nose. They got to have a better nose for a certain thing. And a deer knows what it's, you know, it, it, it's adapted to those types of smells that it's supposed to receive, right? Yep. Similar Whether it's food or predator and so forth, you know, yeah. so that, that it's got the sensory epithelium for those types of things. Okay. So that's, that's called, that's, that's the main olfactory system. We're going to get into another aspect of this here in, in just a minute. Let's finish up the glands first though. Yeah. Okay. So we got seven and we already got three of them done. Three on the head, okay. three on the legs and one halfway between. Okay, so the tarsal gland's the other one that, that I know of. Okay, there's a tarsal gland. That's the one everybody knows of. Before yeah. we get to that one, let's talk about the other two. Okay. On the outside of the deer's hind legs, there's a gland called the metatarsal gland. Yep. It's that little black callus material on the side. Um, in mule deer, it's much larger than it is in, in, uh, in white-tailed deer. Uh, in mule deer, it's, in black-tailed deer, it's supposed to be the source of an alarm pheromone that when a deer's scared, it alerts other deer. Uh, we've done some work with the metatarsal gland in white-tailed and have been absolutely unable to show any function for it at all, and which is kind of interesting in, uh, that even some, some white-tails, as you moved up closer towards the equator, most of the white-tails don't even have that gland anymore. So it might be just a vestigial gland that's not even used or maybe we're just not clever enough to figure out what it is. Yeah. So that's not what really it was not one that's probably that important for communication. It actually may be a, a temperature sensing gland. Uh, the other gland that I think everybody would be familiar with is the interdigital gland between the, the toes, between the digits. Yep. 
there's a little pocket in there between the digits. And if you open it up, you'll see kind of this yellow cheesy material. If you stick your nose to it, it kind of smells like rancid butter. And long, there's a long story behind this, but, you know, every time a deer puts its foot on the ground, it leaves a suite of compounds there. Those compounds have different volatilities, which some may be sm very small compounds that come off the track very quickly. And then as compounds get bigger and bigger, their, their ability to come off that track, they, they slowly come off the track, which means that the scent of that track would necessarily change through time which may be how a predator or a deer tells how old a track is and what direction that track is going. Mm -hmm. But we've also found out that there's the, that some of these glands, uh, particularly in bucks, there are some qualitative and quantitative differences between the individual gland secretions of mature bucks versus younger bucks. Now, this should start your wheels turning a little bit. So what's a buck do when he makes a scrape? He works the overhanging branch, leaving something there, either from his preorbital gland, his forehead gland, his saliva, or something like that. Then pauses away the leaves, you know, underneath that branch. Yep. Very likely living, leaving some uh, scent from his interdigital gland there. Mm -hmm. And then he steps forward and urinates over his tarsal gland into that scrape. So he's leaving a number of these different scents there. So the interdigital gland is, I think, is, is an important one. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's probably not a good one for hunting, even though you can buy interdigital gland secretions. Yeah. But if interdigital gland secretions were an attractant to deer, it would make sense that all deer would end up in the same place, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, but, so it's not, it's an informer uh, scent. It's not a, an attractant scent. Yeah. So another way for deer to identify specific, you know, deer and, and kind of establish their hierarchy there. Right. Be, and know who's in the air and how long yep. it's been since they've been by. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, that's an informal one, but you know, as, as you're aware, the most important gland that we know of on the whitetail is the tarsal gland. Yeah. And that's the one that, uh, that we've, we've done quite a bit of work with, uh, uh, you know, the deer urinate over the tarsal gland, actually all deer urinate over the tarsal gland at least once a day. A lot of people don't realize even does will do that. Usually when they get up from a nocturnal bed, yeah. they'll urinate over the tarsal gland. And that is the source of the odor on that gland. It's not the gland that's producing the odor. It's the urine that's, that, that's on that gland huh. that produces the odor. Even day old fawns urinate on their tarsal gland. So and it's interesting how this works and how it works that a buck gets so stinking randy during, yeah. <laughs> during because here, here's here's we we kind of worked our way through this and how the, how this uh, tarsal gland works. Yep. The uh, the tarsal gland. If you look at the tarsal gland, those long hairs on the tarsal gland, underneath those long hairs, there's these grossly enlarged sebaceous glands. Mm -hmm. that produce this kind of fatty material. And this fatty material then goes out and coats these hairs with this fatty material. And when a deer urinates over on, on, on these tarsal glands, it, the, that fatty material will selectively absorb fat-soluble compounds from the urine and hold it there. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is anything coming out in the urine, by definition, has to be water-soluble. It can't be fat-soluble, right? Mm -hmm. Because urine's water-based. Well, it turns out there's a lot of things that are going around in, inside a deer's body, just like in your body, that are fat-soluble compounds, but they go around in the bloodstream in a water-soluble form because the liver makes them so. They take these fat-soluble things and make them water-soluble by conjugating them, things like testosterone, cholesterol, and so forth. Because they become now water-soluble, the kidney can grab a hold of them and they can be excreted in the urine. So you've got a fat-soluble compound now that became a water-soluble compound so it can be excreted in the urine, but you still got the problem. Now you've got a water-soluble compound and you've got to try to absorb it onto a fat. 
Well, it turns out it gets even more complicated than that. When a deer, <laughs> when a deer urinates on there, it leaves a lot of that urine in there. But you think about that warm, moist, nutrient-rich environment is a tremendous place for the growth of bacteria. And there's a certain type of bacteria that actually makes its living out of breaking those bonds between those, those conjugated steroids and releasing the free steroids. So you've probably smelled fresh buck urine for, straight from a bladder, right? Yep. And it doesn't smell like a tarsal gland. No. If you take that thing and expose it to air or, or put it, you know, put it, you know, set it off to the side over a day or two, once the bacteria have a chance to work on it, it will start to take on that aroma yeah, of the, a running buck. Yeah, the one that we all know. Right. Well, so, yeah. so basically, it's the tarsal gland is just urine that's been degraded by back, symbiotic bacteria working with the deer. Yeah. To make that a buck stink as bad as a buck stinks. That's, that's interesting. Cause so, and I, I know during the rut, so we have a, we have a camp, you know, up in Northern Pennsylvania and whoever gets the, the first buck kind of like during the, the pre-rut rutting phase there, it's usually, well, my dad's taught me this, but fighting to try to cut it off so we could have that, cut those tarsals off Tars, and tarsal. take them with us right. to, to, you know, create a scent drag or do anything yeah, else and the, like and, that. Yeah, the, and the tarsal work, but if you took fresh buck urine, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. Because they're, they're, it's absorbing things out. Now, think about what's going on in, in, in a buck during the rut. All of a sudden, it's testosterone levels going out the roof. Yep. And, you know, well, think about this. Any, any athlete that they're going to do a steroid analysis, what do they do? They make them pee in a jar, right? Yep. And it's the same thing with the deer. It's it's the change in the urine composition during the rut and the frequency of them rub urinating that produces that scent. Huh. Yeah, that's interesting. One one thing, um, it, it, it's funny because I, I love fresh torsal glands. If I can get one of them for and during the rut, I've definitely found deer come into them. I actually had a bear follow one oh, really? sense and the the one time it was uh it was archery hunting and i tied it on a string and carried it in and actually it's kind of it makes me it feels disgusting talking about all those <laughs> different things where you know basically that, that they're peeing on their leg there and then the bacteria takes over as i'm sitting there handling it and then uh, yeah. <laughs> wiping my nose we, and we, we, yeah, that's a good point i was actually going to bring up <laughs> we've identified a lot of the different bacteria that are occurring on the tarsal gland and there's things like staph and listeria and i mean a lot of nasty stuff yeah so the next time you great. mess with the tarsal gland don't put a chew of tobacco in or mess you know yeah. <laughs> poke your eye or something yeah. wash oh. your wash your hands right <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now I'm feeling like wow, I'm a dirtbag. <laughs> but that's that's funny. <laughs> okay, so one more aspect I want to talk about as far as the uh, oh, let's get back to one more gland we haven't done. Yeah, there's another gland halfway between the legs and halfway between the head, and it's only on boy deer. So you know where it's at, right? Yep. <laughs> there's a gland called the prepucial gland, and uh, it's located at the end of the deer's penal sheath. And what's called as prepuce, uh, or foreskin, basically. Yep. And if you ever want to see this gland, we don't know for sure what this gland's for, but we think it might have. Well, I'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> but if you next time before you get out of deer, you'll you notice you probably notice that coming out of the deer's penal shoot, there's several long white hairs that kind of protrude from that. If you um, if you 
before you get it out, kind of roll that penal sheath back. Make sure nobody's watching you do yeah. this. <laughs> <laughs> Especially with a camera, you're gonna, you'll be Facebooked. Yeah. <laughs> but you roll that penal sheath back, and where that hair is inserted into, I'm not going to tell you how we found this thing either, but where this hair is inserted into the, the skin, you'll see this almost grape-like cluster. Yeah. And that's, again, those large sebaceous glands, just like under the tarsal gland. Now, maybe that this, this this gland is used for um, some kind of pheromone, or it may be just some type of lubricant, lubricant, just like we saw in the nasal gland in the nose. You know, you think about where else besides the nose it would have an opportunity to get chafed. Yep. You know, it's kind of a an emollient there as well. So, you know, it's probably not as important as a scent gland. So yeah. the, the important glands for the deer is obviously the forehead gland, the tarsal gland, and the interdigital gland. Yeah. So out out of all these things, I I'm gonna say it's probably the least um, thing that I'm gonna look forward to <laughs> is rolling back the penal sheath and 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 the prefrontal gland. Yeah. Right. The pre. Yeah. I'm I'm gonna get these terms down, but <laughs> uh, you can amaze your friends now, man. Oh yeah. Or or be the the front of the jokes for the rest of the night. There That's you true. go. <laughs> Have another one, guy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Last aspect to talk about when it comes to scent, you know, is how to how to how do does let bucks know that they're ready? Yeah. And you hear all this stuff about uh, doe and heat re- urine and so forth. Um, based on all of our studies that we've done at the University of Georgia, that a, a doe does not communicate her ester status to a buck through her urine. Okay. That should surprise a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot of things that companies that make money off of that. There are. And, and, you know, and I'm not saying that they aren't attractive. The doe urine is not attractive. But we've actually taken does that we knew were in heat with a teaser buck, gone straight into the bladder and got their urine from them or got freshly voided urine and found no no more attraction to that, to to bucks, than to mid-cycle urine. Okay. Okay. So, but we did find that, you know, if we took some vaginal secretions from these does, that there was significantly more attraction. Okay. So maybe they can pick up a little bit. But think about this. If a doe mo- wants to communicate to a buck that she's in heat, yep. and a doe usually urinates sometime between 10, you know, around 10 to 15 times a day, all of a sudden she's left 10 to 15 places for a buck to check out for a doe in heat, and she's in number 16. Mother Nature isn't that sloppy. Yeah. That makes sense. Wouldn't it make more sense that she would carry that scent with her? And in fact, that's what she does. She carries that scent with her. And it's either coming from a reproductive tract or maybe her whole body permeates that, that scent as well. Okay. But a buck can tell that basically smelling. And if you ever watch a buck that's about to mount a doe, she, he always goes up and checks yeah. her back in. Always right? checks back in. Checks yep. the tarsal gland and then checks you know, the vulva area uh, to, to confirm that this doe is in heat. Yeah. So you've probably also seen... When a buck comes up to a urine spot in, on the ground or something like that, they'll do this behavior called fleeman or lip curl. They take some of that urine up yep. into their mouth. They pinch their nose back. They throw, open their mouth a little bit, throw their head back, and they kind of uh, they go through this fleeman behavior. And a lot of people think that that's what he's doing to assess whether or not this doe's in heat. Probably not. And there's a number of reasons why I suggest that it's not. First of all, we didn't find any evidence in some, when we did our, some of our behavioral stuff. But what that buck's doing when he's taking some of that urine up into her, his, his mouth is what people don't realize is a deer actually has two noses. And they have a second nose located on the roof of their mouth called the varmural nasal organ. If you open up a deer's mouth and look at the roof of their mouth, there's a little diamond-shaped structure up there. And the back end of that, there's a little hole in there, a little pit. 
that when a deer does that Fleeman behavior, it actually pumps some of that urine up into that vulnerable nasal organ for analysis. Aren't you glad you're not a deer? Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm thinking this in my head like, geez. So and now, now, now the question is, what, is it, what information is this deer getting from that? Well, we, we've never done this in deer, but in other, other species, they've dissected out the, the vulnerable nasal organ and looked at the neural pathways to where it goes in different parts of the brain. And it goes to what's called an accessory olfactory system, an accessory bulb, not the, the main olfactory system, which is then connected to a very primitive part of the brain called the hypothalamus, which controls the deer's physiology. In other words, it bypasses any part of the deer's brain that controls behavior. So in other words, that deer's getting some information, but it doesn't even know that it's getting it's not like it says, it smells food, then I should eat, or I smell a predator, I should run. It's getting something. It's affecting his physiology, and it's it, particularly his reproductive physiology. In other words, it's making, him, it's making him want it more. Yes. It's more like a natural Viagra, probably, than, than it is. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, you know, the, for lack of better terms. You know, yeah. But, but it, it's affecting his physiology to make sure that he's in peak reproductive condition at the same time, she's in peak reproductive condition. Okay. Uh, so it makes him him want it more, but it also raises his testosterone level, increases his libido, it increases probably his is is uh, may may actually affect his you know sperm con- content con- her sperm count or something. But it's affecting his physiology, not necessarily yeah. his behavior. Only it only affecting his behavior as a result of that, right? Yeah. It makes him more of a stud in response to that. I'm I'm sure glad humans don't do that. It'd be, it'd be awkward <laughs> hey, going man. out to the bar and seeing guys doing that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's funny. So, huh? I no, I, I had I had no idea about the the one inside the mouth there and the the yeah, next, reason for next the, time you growing. look at you know, look at look at the yeah. roof of a deer's mouth. You know, does have this as well, and, and lots of other animals. A horse will do the same thing. That that uh, Fleeman behavior. Yeah, that lip curl. Okay. Uh, so, in response to some odd smell. Yeah. But interesting. Um, so along along the lines of smell, all right. There's there's something that uh, again, this is a, a myth or something that uh, a lot of hunters look at is all right. The the basis between someone wearing you know rubber boots versus leather boots walking in. Do you have any um, thought process on that? Um. Again, the first thing I would say is walk in where you don't expect the deer to be, first of all, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's number one. Yep. Uh, obviously, something wearing leather or, you know, uh, any type of textile averse on vegetation, you're going to have more of these scent weight based kind of wafers uh, adhere to them. You know, any trapper will know, will tell you that rubber boots by far are going to be beneficial compared to leather boots. Unless you may, use, you know, while you're getting gas at the gas station, wearing your rubber boots and you step in a, <laughs> in a puddle of gasoline or yeah. grease or something, uh, you know, clean le- clean rubber boots, you know, walking into a stand is by far the best thing to do. Yeah. Okay. Um, but as far as like, um, again, going back to something you covered right at the beginning was with, you know, the scent control side of things. Is there a way with external products or anything else to really actually cover your scent or is that more of a you know there there are a lot of things out there you can do to reduce scent yep you cannot eliminate it yep and you know 
it's it's a difference of walking into a room smelling somebody that hasn't bathed in you know several days versus somebody that hasn't bathed in two days. You know, uh, yeah, you can reduce the amount of it, uh, but you can never absolutely eliminate scent. Uh, you, you know, even things like the ozonics is going to reduce it quite a bit. Uh, scent-free deterrents. All, there's all kinds of stuff yeah. that will reduce it, but there will still be if if the deer's downwind. It's you know. It, yeah. It may be less likely, but you may reduce the probability of them smelling it, but you can't completely in- eliminate it. And the way I've always taken scent control is there, there's so many things I feel like you can do. And I've tried going through that where I'm stripping down at my truck, you know, getting out, putting all my clothes out of the sealed tight tote and all this stuff. And now I got to the point where I was like, that's just, that's not any fun as far as for me, for me with hunting. So I'll, I'll wash my clothes and scent-free stuff, and I put the scent-free deodorant on, and the same thing with showering. But I'm like, I mean, real right now, as we're sitting here, I'm about to go hunting this afternoon, and, and I'm sitting in my hunting clothes inside the cabin. But, <laughs> right. you know, well, you know the, the, I keep coming back to the point. You know, hunt smart. Yeah. Yep. People used to kill deer long before there were these products. Native Americans killed them with a stick and a rock. Yep. You know, that, you know, that if you hunt smart and hunt downwind, there's no way they could ever smell you. Yeah. Yep. You know, you know, you see these people that go through all these extremes for scent control and then they're wearing bad camel where they're wearing blue jeans or something like that, or they're fidgeting in their stand, you know, yeah. you know, you know, think of, you know, it's just not scent. There's yeah. all kinds of other things. And the, the sense of vision is much more important to, to deal with when it comes to deer than sense of smell. Yeah. Particularly if you're downwind. I mean, the sense of smell is out of the, out of the picture then. Yeah, Definitely. That's that's so interesting, and and one of the other points that you said that was really interesting to kind of go back to is with the the smell and you know less being in the urine versus you know on their body you know and and certain places. But you mean the dough and heat? Yeah, yeah. Like the, with the dough and heat was like so if you you're hunting in an area and a hot doe comes through, you know it's a hot doe because all of a sudden these other bucks are coming out, and if right. they were just you know pissing in a certain area then they're gonna right. you know that they wouldn't be able to track it you know the- now this doesn't mean dough and heat can't be urine can't be effective yeah because we know that urine is important for deer they pee all over their gland once a day uh yeah. they got a specialized organ in the roof of their mouth for analyzing urine you know it's bucks pee and scrape so urine is important in communication but probably not for the reason a lot of it's sold in, in that yeah. it communicates estrus okay yeah that that makes sense interesting yeah, that uh, there's a lot of a lot of points there that I you know hadn't thought of or makes now makes more sense to me that you know again there's a lot of myths and things that that you think about with that that's that's very interesting. There's there's a lot of old wives' tales out in the woods, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there is, <laughs> there is, and uh, oh, that's that's it's I love hearing it being backed up by research and science and everything that has been able to to be done with it, and and one of the other biggest things that was an eye opener for me was just like the the deer's vision like that we talked about and and you know a human perception versus because that's the way i always was i remember the first time i was introduced to gore optifade and and sick i was like why why would i wear that when i can wear something that look like a tree you yeah know? exactly <laughs> <laughs> and i didn't and but not to mention even from a human perception some of those other uh mimicry patterns from a distance you still see the outline of a person mm-hmm better you know right yeah the the optifade was based off i mean that's based off science it was based off some of the deer science we did a long time ago as well yeah Yeah. and you know sick is continuing that research yeah that that makes sense so when you when you retire i guess retire do you think you'll still be doing some of these other things oh that's when i retire that's when i start playing (laughs) 
That's when you start playing. <laughs> <laughs> you get to you get to go on business trip. That's AKA exactly, just like like yeah. Ohio with a bow. You know, I like I like business trips with a bow in my hand. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's not too bad at all. <laughs> uh, all right, is there anything else, Carl, that you think that we should you know talk about here? I know there's a million things again you could go into. Yeah, you know, I guess the last thing is you know if, if you have any interest in you know some of the stuff we've done in uh, Georgia in at the Deer Lab there, our, our website there. Uh, you can get a taste of it. It's called UGA Deer Research, one word, dot org. If somebody wants to visit that, they can see some of the stuff we currently got going on or maybe actually download some of our science papers and stuff. Yeah, I, yeah, I'd, I'd definitely recommend checking that out. I remember I was looking at it, um, I don't remember how long ago, but I saw even you have like links to other podcasts you've done talking about these things and, and a whole bunch of other right. research articles. So, And there was, there was a one... One research thing I was going to talk to you about when we when we talked about this ahead of time, you said I need to get Andy Olson on to talk about the Pennsylvania deer study that yeah yeah we we could talk about that, but I think Andy was the one that lived yeah. it. I don't want to you know take his yeah. thunder from him. take get Andy because he you know he lived he lived with those deer for a couple of years and, and yeah. those those deer you know the idea of going into northern Pennsylvania and putting GPS collars on a bunch of mature yep. you know three and a half year old and older bucks. Uh, is kind of interesting. We've, we've we've learned a lot about deer movement in the big woods like that. Yeah, and it's and it's not like you would see in farmland situations. Very interesting. Um, is there any any other places that you have any you know published articles, anything else out that people can look for or, or find anywhere? Uh, you know, one of the best places as a as a as a source of a lot of this type of information, whether it's stuff that I'm doing or other deer researchers around the country, is through the QDMA. Yep. Their Quality Whitetails Journal is outstanding. A lot of it's written by biologists. A lot of times it's written by the scientists that are actually doing the work. Yep. You know, I've, I've, I've published a lot in there. Uh, Mississippi State's done a lot there, you know, P- Penn State and so forth. Anytime there's, you know, some major stuff going on, QDMA is aware of it and probably involved with it or helping fund it. And they are, they are great for disseminating new information as well. Yeah, I yeah, I'd highly recommend first becoming a QDMA member, Definitely. and then you get the you get the journal there and everything. I I read it whenever it comes in, and very very great information there. And that's been one of the so for for your knowledge, Carl. I uh, I so I sell some lifestyle apparel to help support the podcast and everything. And I donate three percent of that back to a couple conservation organizations, and one of the ones I chose was the QDMA awesome. for the well, good for you. Yeah, for the the reasons of that, but um, yeah. Great, great group of guys there too. Yeah, very, yeah, very. So, and you know, they are they are working real hard to help deer hunters in every state. You know, and they are one of these organizations that are very supportive of the national, the NDA, the National Deer Association, which everybody should be a member of as well, since it's free. Yeah, you know, just get on to NDA. You know, type in NDA and just become a free member of it, and it'll send you a weekly digest of deer issues that are going around in the country. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that would be. I think that's something everyone needs to do, and and like I said, QDMA, NDA, all all those things there. We're all in this together. Yep, you're exactly right. All right, Carl. Well, thanks for coming on here, and uh, it's been I, fun. Yeah, it has been fun. I've enjoyed having spending some hunting camp here with you, and and uh, hopefully we get to do this again. Yeah, it's getting close to that time to be heading out in the woods, anyways. Yeah, it is. I know, and Owen just walked through the door here, so I think it's I think it's about time. All right, sounds good. All right, thanks, Carl. Sure thing.
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.